If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this March 12, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Hour number two, generally when we try to do an interview, and uh, that's going to be more difficult as we move along in this uh, new version of the podcast in our new location, depending on how long we're able to make that work. I talked about all the uh, the troubles that we've been having, making the transition at the beginning of hour number one of the podcast, so check that out. Uh, but during our unexpected, unscheduled, unanticipated, and, and uh, frankly, very frustrating hiatus, I did do a couple of interviews, one of which I want to run right now. And that is an interview I did with David Frum, the conservative author and writer who um, was in Los Angeles. And so I met with him at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. And we did an interview about his book, Trumpocracy, the corruption of the American democracy. Now, some of this is dated, but most of it is not. So I still think you'll get some appreciation for it. And hopefully it'll also get you interested in purchasing the book, Trumpocracy. So here was my conversation Frankly, I guess it was about five or six weeks ago now with David Frum, author of Trumpocracy. David Frum, author of Trumpocracy. Thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Well, John, it's great to be with you on this beautiful day here in Los Angeles. And that's authentic L.A. street noise that people are hearing behind us. We are not in the sound set. <laughs> well said. It's great to finally meet you in person. Uh, all right. So, so much to talk about. With regard to the book, which has created quite a stir... The, the word Trumpocracy is taken from autocracy. Yeah. T- tell people, starting off, who might not be familiar with what an autocracy is. What, what is that? Well, an autocracy literally means one-man rule. Um, it's a kind of old-fashioned form of government because in a big, modern, bureaucratic state, uh, I don't care if you're Stalin, you're not ruling by yourself. Mm-hmm. With Trumpocracy, what I'm interested in is the system of power that makes Donald Trump possible. He's not doing this by himself. And look, like everybody, I read the Michael Wolf book with fascination. I think I learned a lot from it. But if we concentrate only on Trump, our camera lens is too tight. 
What you need to pay attention to are the guys just over his shoulder in Congress, in the party, in the country who make him possible. All right, now, but I, I, my perception is that the fear in Trumpocracy is that you're going to, we're basically going to change our form of government in a, in a sense. And the subtitle is The Corruption of, a, yeah. of American Republic. It, it, do I have that right? Well, it's not, I think the forms are very conservative, mm-hmm. it's the content that will mm-hmm. change. You know, um, yeah, Congress is still meeting, nothing's changed. But Donald Trump is the first president to run a business mm-hmm. while president since Lyndon Johnson. Um, he's blown up all of the post-Watergate ethical systems. Um, he is the first president in American history where we have real suspicions about whether he's beholden to a foreign power. He is right now cashing checks from foreign business partners in the Philippines and in Turkey and other places like that. Um, so we've got a new kind of presidency. And Congress, which is supposed to be the check on the presidency, is enabling it. And a lot of Americans who believe, wear American flags in their lapels and believe in America first are putting America last and putting Turkey, the Philippines, and Russia first. We're speaking a few days after Trump made uh, quite a bit of news because he says he wants a parade, a military parade. Right. And to me, the first thing I thought about was you and your book, because mm-hmm. uh, this fits in my mind, right into a lot of the fears that you've been expressing about Trumpocracy. And, uh, and I, I was a little surprised. I saw you tweet that, uh, that he, this was him trying to be Henry Hyde from The Music yeah. Man. Well, I, and, and I know you're trying to joke about yeah. that, right? But, but to me, in a weird way, I feel like that's almost the greatest danger, is that we, we look at Trump as a buffoon right. and that therefore we, we're not immediately af- afraid of these precedents and that it's someone else down the line in the future who may actually be the real dangerous person to take advantage of him. Do you see what I'm saying yeah. there? So my basic theory of Donald Trump is that he's a crook first and that the, the tyrannical elements are there to protect him from legal mm-hmm. and national security risk. So I, I don't think Donald Trump... Um, thinks about power in a, exactly a cold-blooded way. He's a, he's a creature of appetites. He wants things. You know, he wants to grab that woman. He wants to take this pile of money. And he doesn't care about any rules. But once he's done that, he's in danger. Mm-hmm. So he's got to turn off the burglar alarms of the American Republic because otherwise he'd get into trouble because of all the grabbing. Um, and he doesn't have political ideas. You know, he doesn't... Um, he doesn't have a theory. There's, there's, there's nothing he wants to do as president, but there are things he wants to take, and the system is set up to try to contain it, so he has to wreck the system. So am I right, though, that while he is a danger, do you see a greater danger in what would follow him because of his precedence? I see the greatest danger in what makes him possible. Um, Donald Trump would not happen in a healthy country. Um, the Constitution, the party system, All the mechanisms of government are set up to screen people out, like Donald Trump. So the first chapter of my book is called Pre-Existing Conditions. And they go, how did this happen? Because it wasn't supposed to. And so I see him, he's he's both obviously a a dangerous figure, but he's also a a symptom of deeper problems in American society. Where where do you think the greatest breakdown came? To me, it was in our media, but where where, where do you see the, the greatest breakdown that allowed him to happen? Um, I see it in the combination of economic disappointment for most people over a long period of time, combined with increasing ethnic diversity. Um, a society can handle um, slow growth. It can hire, 
it can handle inequality, and it can handle rapid ethnic change, but it can't handle them all together. Mm -hmm. And when you have all of those things together, you get reactions. And Donald Trump very shrewdly exploited those reactions. Let's talk about the reaction to the book and your uh, book tour. You've yeah. created quite a stir. Uh, give us some of the, uh, the the highlights or maybe the, the lowlights. What's been, what has been the most interesting element of, of your book tour so far? Well, for me, the most interesting... Look, I, I've been in journalism and writing a long time, and frankly, I've always been pretty much a boutique taste. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I, in the past, if I announced I was doing a book talk and 17 or 18 people showed up, that was, that was a good thing. So I've been talking to bigger audiences than, than that and different kinds of audiences. And they're not there for me, obviously. They're there because... People wake up, a large number of Americans, with this feeling of dread. And they have a lot of powerful emotions. And they want to channel those emotions in productive ways. Um, and so I've been offering them a way to do that. So that's been, so that's been the dominant theme. Um, you know, I've had a few sort of media things that have been kind of interesting. I, I made my first appearance on Fox News in eight years. Um, I was on the Steve Hilton show. Uh, and I had a kind of a scuffle with uh, the Mooch on the Bill Maher show. Right. Tell us about the, the Mooch situation. So, this, um, uh, so Anthony Scaramucci, who was Trump's communication advisor for 11 days and who had hung around with Trump on the campaign trail, he had this spectacular meltdown that led him to being booted out of the White House. He called Ryan Lizza of The New Yorker and then erupted in this bizarre right. tirade and then lied about it, right. and then Liz revealed that there was a recording, right. and, and uh, the Mooch was out. Um, like a lot of the people in the Trump orbit, the Mooch has then gone on this national rehabilitation tour. You know, I'm a reasonable person, um, and he, he sort of wants in, back into the White House, but he also wants back into the national conversation. And so I was invited onto the Mar show, and Mooch was not done, Mark can interview whoever he wants, obviously, his program, but he joined a panel in which... I was sort of supposed to sit there and, and nod and be a prop. <laughs> and it, this goes on, and I no disrespect to anybody involved in the planning of the show, but that's just how they do things, as if, you know, because normally that seat belongs to a comedian or an entertainer or a director who's there to talk about their new picture or their new right. tour. And, like, I, that's not my topic area, so you listen, that's interesting, you nod. And then there's this guy saying all of these things. about, And so I get a little irritated. And so I, well, there are some questions about Scaramucci's own finances that took him into the White House on the way out. So I asked him those question, that question. Um, tell me about the sale of your company to this very shadowy Chinese group um, that, got, that, who were very, that got very excited when you were in, and the thing seems to have gone nowhere since you left office. Tell me about that. <laughs> and normally when you ask a business person about their business dealings, even if you've done a lot of research, and I have done some work on his thing, he knows a hundred times more than you. Right. And he should be able to bury you under right. facts and figures. Sure. Instead, panic. Panic. I mean, just, <laughs> he totally loses it on air, and then he can't let it go, and then he becomes very personally abusive. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't lose my temper, but I do try to answer him back. And my, my favorite moment was, um, so when Scaramucci sat down, in this interview, as in every other, he finds a way within the first 60, 70 seconds to mention, oh, by the way, I went to Harvard. Right. And, uh, which, he, which is a fact that happened 30 years ago, and one would hope <laughs> that you would have some accomplishments in your life since then. But That's no, all that, it takes, isn't it, to a Harvard person? Unless I, you went I, to Yale, I guess. I, I think it should take a little more than that for a man <laughs> in his 50s. Um, so 
so when I when we have our set to, he then says to me, um, "Well, you're expressing the typical cultural elitism of people in your situation." And I said, "Look, you can either accuse me of cultural elitism or name drop Harvard, but not both." <laughs> That's good. What was the reaction uh, of the show? Did they, did they, they, they they weren't so happy. Really? Uh, you know, look, a show is a show. I mean, they have a show to run. It has to be orderly. Uh, they have a plan. And, um, and you so think we, you'll be back? I, I not not anytime soon. I really? Don't so they yeah. were really not happy. You know, anytime soon. Wow, um, that surprises me. I would have thought they would have loved it. I don't know. No, I, you they, don't they, know. They, right. they have. A, they do have a show to run. They have to right. keep it orderly. They have guests. It's like it's it, look. You're you're running kind of a railroad. You right. have to get the people on sure. with this, on the train and off the train, and you don't, you don't need incidents. <laughs> All right. Let's get back to Trump um, specifically. And I know you've done a lot of commentary on the whole Russia investigation. Yeah. And you know, I, I'm really confused, um, and I'm very curious as to where you are currently on this. I have been in the camp of. There's just way too much lying for there not to be something very serious that yeah. they're hiding. However, the, the collusion, this, you know, whatever, however you want to define it, the collusion argument, I still see some holes in it. Um, what, what? What, well, I, I'm wondering, <laughs> what, there seems to me that there should be more proof at this point uh, of that. And, um, and and where do you see the proof? I mean, obviously you disagree with me. So what, why well, do you? Do? It's not that I exactly disagree with you. Uh, first, I think what Trump does is he habituates us to things that were once shocking. Mm-hmm. Correct. So, if I could have told you in June of 2015, everything that as of February of 2018 is established fact. Mm-hmm. So, th- what would you think of this? Well, that's the biggest scandal in American history. I agree. Uh, but what what happens is because it's come up bit by bit, and because it's Trump, and he's so you know shocking. Well, people that, forget. People have forgotten about the Don Jr. meeting. Right. So, mean. so it's so here are the facts. The facts are undisputed. Um, the Russians, Ru- Russian-backed people, hacked into American communication systems and got mm-hmm. hold of de- uh, email from Democrats and Republicans. Those emails were at least the Democratic emails. We don't know what happened to the Republican emails. The hackers handed the Democratic emails over to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks, which American experts generally agree is an arm of the Russian state at this point. Uh, They then selectively release things timed in ways to help the Trump campaign. The Trump people met with WikiLeaks in advance of, or met with Russians in advance of these leaks, and and in writing, welcomed the release of this information and knew in advance the general shape of what the information was. And on it goes. Um, So, when people say, I don't know if there was collusion, what they mean is, I don't know whether the Trump people actively and consistently and persistently <laughs> collaborated with WikiLeaks right. uh, in the shaping of the message and whether there was a back-and-forth communication. And you're right, we don't know any of those things. Well, it's yes. a definition. It's your, it's your threshold or your standard of collusion, I guess. Let me throw but, a theory. But let, me put, let me put it this yeah. way. If at the George W. Bush campaign, <laughs> somebody from Russia had sent... a, a Somebody has sent a letter to somebody, in the, an email to somebody in the Bush campaign and said, I have dirty information on Al Gore. Mm-hmm. Would you like to hear it? Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have called that person back. They would have mm-hmm. called the FBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, and no one did. And, um, and look, I, I'm not trying to downplay the, uh, what, what we already know. We already have two people who have pled guilty. Uh, yeah, we, one more we, thing. Yeah. I've got to belabor this point. But no, one of the things I do in, in Trumpocracy, there's a lot about this we don't know. But... Um, and I think that we will. But here, let me just point out 
in one place a timeline that tells you, I think, what's going on. So, so there are two big WikiLeaks dumps, one in the summer and one in October. On about October 4th, um, people in Trump world, Roger Stone among others, begin tweeting that a big, big break is coming. Mm-hmm. Julian Assange calls, calls a press conference on October 5th, um, but doesn't say much. Uh, and there's enormous disappointment in Trump world, right. as if something was expected right. and didn't happen on October 5th. In fact, Alex Jones uh, right. calls Julian Assange Hillary Clinton's butt plug right. because he's so angry right. that this thing they were expecting right. didn't happen. Correct. October 6th, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern Time, October the 7th, David Farenthold of the Washington Post mm-hmm. posts the Access Hollywood tape story. Right. Not an hour later comes the big WikiLeaks dump mm-hmm. of the Podesta emails. Um, most of the Podesta emails aren't that interesting. There are a few interesting things. That's where, right. the, that's where the speeches are, the Hillary Clinton uh, bank speeches. But in the Podesta dump, and it's huge, are two emails from people in the Hillary Clinton world uh, talking about Roman Catholic doctrine. And these are people, they're expressing, they're, they're Catholics themselves, and they're expressing the views of Catholic doctrine that are shared, according to the polls, by about three-quarters of American Catholics about the church's teaching on sexuality and women. The Trump people, the most chaotic and disorganized campaign in history, find these two emails within minutes and are ready to go first thing the next morning with a rollout campaign of messaging, hammering home the theme that the Clinton campaign is anti-Catholic, and this, the Vice President Pence is out there, the President is out there, Kellyanne, or the, sorry, future Vice President Pence, future President Trump, Kellyanne Conway, other talkers are on this point within minutes, hmm. October 8th. Now, maybe they just were very quick off the mark, but... You think they got a heads up? That's another alternative explanation. They had some idea of what was coming. Maybe, obviously not exactly, because Mm -hmm. that's why they were so panicky when it didn't materialize when they thought it would. Mm -hmm. But when it did, they knew where to look. That's a very good point, and I hadn't really thought that much about that. I, I, I mean, to me, I'm always looking at, okay, what's a narrative that makes total sense throughout? And I'm wondering if the incompetence slash fear of financial revelations narrative fits what we currently know. Yeah. I, I, do you know what I'm saying? That, yeah. that, 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 that there, there were hints of collusion out of incompetence, but they never actually went and did the full Monty, yeah. so to speak. But now they're all afraid of what it looks that, that like. Ma- that and makes total sense. I, look, I, this, I mean, there, there are, this is the C list of the Republican Party, right. the Trump campaign. So... I, I think it's very possible they got involved with this without even properly understanding right. that they shouldn't do it. Right. Um, and they probably went pretty far down the road without quite getting how serious all of this was. Right. Um, I, that that may be. Um, so. And that now, when this goes certainly to your other other elements of what I've seen you say about Trump, that Trump's greatest fear is not because he's consistent about saying no collusion, no collusion, which doesn't mean anything coming from Trump. Yeah. But he's pretty far out there on that. But he's also deathly afraid of the investigation. Right. So what's he afraid of if he if there's no collusion, which he could be lying about, but or 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 more likely in my mind, he's worried about what Mueller's going to find elsewhere. Yeah. And that it, and that would be financial connections to Russia that he's been lying about for years, money laundering, tax evasion, I, that kind of stuff. I don't think Trump's mind works in that one-to-one way that okay. you're describing. Yeah. He just he lives in a world in which. 
he's either dominating others or being dominated by them. Mm-hmm. He can never have a normal relationship. He can never have a legal relationship. Mm-hmm. So what he, when he walked into the government, he began trying to control and dominate American law enforcement. And to a considerable extent, he succeeded. Um, and the Rod Rosensteins of this world have more or less submitted to him. But he, found, he kept bumping into a few people who didn't submit, like James Comey, so he got rid of them. In Mueller, he faces someone he cannot dominate and is afraid to get rid of. And that is, and so he has, he has to exist in a way with him, in a way that Donald Trump can't comfortably exist with anybody. He's either in control or being controlled. Interesting. Now, so what is David Frum's prediction, if you will, about where this is all going? Um, if I had to guess, I would say 2018 is going to be a better year for Donald Trump than 2017. Economy's strong. Uh, all this chaos in the stock market is driven by um, uh, some good information. Right. Uh, the labor markets are tightening. The Federal Reserve will increase interest rates. Um, that indicates a stronger economy. Like, if interest rates are 1%, that tells us people can't think of things to do with capital. Mm-hmm. If interest rates are 3%, that tells us that people are bidding, they want capital, and they're prepared mm-hmm. to pay more for it because they can think of things to do with it. That's a sign of economic health. But it makes stocks less valuable. Mm-hmm. And so the markets are correcting to that. This doesn't feel like there's some depression in the air. It just feels like, you know, the projected value of future um, flow, co- uh, corporate flow, profit flows are less valuable at an interest rate of 3% or 4% than they are at 1% or 2%. And so the market's correcting. But people, there, there's more work. Wages are rising. Um, so I think there'll be more satisfaction in the American population. And that will redound to the credit of the president. Maybe not enough to save the Republicans in Congress, but he will have a better year. And indeed, when Republicans in Congress are weaker, his position compared to theirs, becomes more powerful. Right. Well, I guess what my, my question was more intended towards the Mueller investigation. Where do you see that heading? Well, here's what I most read in the Mueller investigation. When the Trump people say collusion is not a crime, mm-hmm. they're sort of right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, there are a lot of crimes that you can commit in the course of colluding. Uh, like right. um, hacking is a crime, and directly receiving the product of a hack is mm-hmm. a crime. Um, and there are a lot of election law. Mm-hmm. possibilities and you know registering as a foreign agent but those I think a lot of Americans will experience as pretty technical on the core evil of an American political campaign working in tandem let's not call it collusion but working cooperatively right. with a foreign espionage agency if they can stay away from certain technical legal infractions that core thing is probably not illegal Mm-hmm. And we may be heading toward a point where what we're arguing about in six months, nine months, or a year is a huge constitutional crisis where the president is exposed to having these improper connections, but there's not a prosecutable offense that if it reaches anybody in its innermost circle. Well, but obviously obstruction of justice would be one. But, but the Republicans will argue, and Alan, you hear Alan Dershowitz saying this now, how can it be obstruction of justice if the thing he was obstructing wasn't illegal to do? Well, that's, that's, that's not... Okay, that's not good law, but the point is... this. When you say, what is, this is not, here's where it's not leading. It's not leading to that moment where 80% of American society say, you're right, this guy's a crook, and worse, get him out of office. We're not going to that point. I agree with that a thousand percent. In fact, I, I think Mueller could have the greatest smoking guns imaginable with the most damning report, and I don't think he would move the needle more than a couple percentage points. Probably, well, you just wrote most recently, the most recent column was about th- this interaction between. Um, uh, those people in the conservative world who have a reaction against Trump and those who, who defend him. 
Um, and as you point out, this is, a lot of this is sub-rational. Um, mm-hmm. And if it's sub-rational, you can't change people's minds. Facts don't about. matter. We're in a post-fact world, David. Yeah. And you can't, we're also in a post-art, that we're dealing with questions of deep identity. Um, and um, there are people, look, to my mind, the, the most notable fact about Trump's personality is that he's cruel. Um, he's just, he likes to find those who are weaker than him and hurt them. Okay, you think, well, that's pretty terrible. Except, look, the Romans built the Colosseum about the year 70, and it stayed in business for about 400-plus years. Mm-hmm. I think they had shows twice a week. I don't think there were a lot of empty seats. And they watched people hack themselves to death. That You could put bums in seats for 400 years, twice right. a week, right. <laughs> right. to watch cruelty. There's something about it that some people find exciting. Mm-hmm. And there's something about it that other people find repulsive. And that might be, I, I think this is where you're going. Do, do you see that as the primary divide within the Republican Party at this point? Those that they'd get a kick out of that and those that are repulsed yeah. by it? Yeah, I mean, look, obviously there are people who are into Trump because they get something material out of it. Like, if, right. if you're someone who got, you know, a $200 million tax cut, you don't have to like the guy to appreciate that. Sure, right, right. <laughs> You'll take that from anybody. Right. Um, and, you know, I think for some of the really intense social conservatives who say abortion is everything... Uh, I don't care what else you do. Mm. And they say they can make their own kind of version of a pact mm. with that. I think for the sort of the... One of the things we've learned from the Trump years is the Re- Republican Party is not as religious as we used to think it was. And even the religious parts of it aren't as religious as they thought they were. They, I think there are people who are excited by, yeah, by he just hurts people who they think deserve to be hurt. And they like it. You know, and that's an interesting way to look at it. I always ask... Um, people in the never-Trump crowd uh, of conservatives, uh, what's the element of what we've seen over the last couple of years, or maybe even more recently, that has surprised you the most about what used to be known as the conservative movement? And there's so many things to choose from. I mean, you just mentioned that we're not as religious as we pretended to be or thought that we were. Is there something else that comes to your mind and you say, wow, that really surprised me, that this thing I thought I believed about conservatism wasn't really true, or this group of people reacted in, in this particular way, and I did not see that coming. Is there anything yeah, in well, that category? Uh, lots, lots and lots of surprises. Um, uh, I, but maybe the most ominous for the future is I've been surprised at how much more explicit Republicans were. Like, like the idea, maybe not everybody should vote all the time, that's been there in the conservative world for a long time. Right. But it was never quite put so explicitly. There was mm-hmm. there, euphemized. People didn't even admit to themselves that that's what they were saying. In the Trump era, we were hearing that more and more. Um, and uh, that there is, I think, what's going on, most basically, is there are a lot of Republicans who are realizing we have a vision of what it means to be an American. And about one-third of the people who live inside the borders mm-hmm. of the United States flunk that test. They're not really American. They're the proper Americans who are about two-thirds of the country, and they're then these mm-hmm. interlopers, you know, one-third. If you've got a majority of the proper Americans, you've got all the legitimacy you need. And that's mm-hmm. why you can watch Fox News, and they constantly talk about whatever happens to Trump in 2018. In 2017, he was the most unpopular first-year president in the history of Poland. He got, in the election, he got half a point more of the vote than Michael Dukakis, half a point less than Mitt Romney, and a lot less than John Kerry or Al Gore. Right. This is not 
this guy does not have a big mandate. It was a fluke. It was a fluke. But if you watch Fox, they will talk about it all the time as if he's speaking for the American people. Right. And what they mean is, he's speaking for all the American people that I think deserve to be counted. Or the Fox viewers. He's speaking for the Fox viewers. Or those who are enti- who give legitimacy. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people inside the United States, but they are not part of the legitimate nation. Mm-hmm. And I think we're moving to a world in which classic democracy, every person is a citizen, and every citizen's voice should count equally, I think we're seeing Republicans rejecting that much more explicitly than I ever expected them to reject it. Hmm. I, I had not thought about that element of it. You mentioned Fox News, and you mentioned that you've been on Fox News to promote your book, Trumpocracy. Did that surprise you, that you were not completely blackballed from, from Fox News? How did that happen? Oh, yeah, that always... What'll happen about once a year, I'll, I'll get a call from a booker, obviously a very young person, will ask me to come on some show, and... I don't do a lot. I, they didn't I, get the memo type of thing? Yeah, it's like they're new. So I'll have this experience. So I, I'm not always so eager to go on TV. So, would you like to come on at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday, <laughs> on a day that happens to be your daughter's birthday? And, uh, and, and like if CNN or MSNBC would call, I say, I can't. I'm sorry. I've got a right. conflict. Um, but with Fox, I always play with them. And I always right. say, sure. See what happens. See what happens. And it takes sometimes between 45 minutes and an hour. For them to call back and cancel. And say, we're taking the show in a different direction. So so what do you think happens under those so, circumstances? Oh, so I, they tell the producer, and the producer says, are you joking? Absolutely not. Um, uh, but in the, case, in the case of this appearance, first, it was a Sunday night show. So it's, there's a lot, a little more leeway. It was Steve Hilton, who's the former campaign manager for David Cameron, mm. and did Rupert Murdoch a lot of favors in the mm. UK. So he's got special dispensation to run wow. a show more his own way, and um, and so uh, it slipped through the cracks. It slipped through the cracks, and, <laughs> um, and then uh, and then we had a, a pretty feisty uh, session. I invite people to watch it. No, I, I, I had not seen it, but I will absolutely check that out. I, um, how many times do you think this has happened where you were asked to come on Fox News and then get the call back, oh, by the way, we're going... Once a year. Okay, once a year. Because right. there's no question that Fox News has, a, has blackballed uh, yeah. certain and, people, right? Yeah, and look, and there's no constitutional right to go on Fox, Fox no, News. No, sure. And, and look, the whole point of Fox News, Fox News exists to create an artificial playground for a certain kind of older man. Like so, out, out there, you know, there are all kinds of people who disagree with him. Uh, uh, out there, you know, he hears things he doesn't like. Out there, he has to watch what he says. But what Fox News and talk radio, your former industry, do is they create this world in which you can be an older, cranky guy. And not only do you never have to hear anything you don't like, but they can bring in all these beautiful women to agree right. with you. Right. Like, in real life, the beautiful women do not agree with you. Right. But in this, <laughs> in this space, they excellent point about the libtards you know? right that's <laughs> and, and so it's like a perfect controlled environment it's like it's like a retirement community it's like it's a uh, fantasy land it's for, a fantasy. for a middle-aged and older yeah, conservative like, what is that, white Disney male town? celebration so, <laughs> so you know it, you, you don't bring you don't drive a noisy taco truck into the yeah. middle of celebration and you don't invite me onto fox news i will say things and and when they do have a dissenting voice on fox news it's usually somebody whom even their hosts, who are not the brainiest people in the world, can chop to pieces. Right. You know, you find some, you know, somebody with a, a stutter from, you know, some community college, and you chop them to pieces. Well, professor, and the professor is desperately studying and can't re- stuttering and can't remember his notes. So to have me on would be a little bit more uncomfortable. Is it fair to say, in, in kind of in the theme of, of your book, is it fair to call uh, Fox News state-run media? Um, it's more sinister than that, actually, um, because 
Look, state-run media and countries that have them are full of dissenters. Mm-hmm. And they're always slyly, you know, putting things on the air or showing the chairman of the party from an unflattering angle and then pretending <laughs> to be stupid about it. Um, no, Fo- Fox is a, cru- a crucial part of the enabling structure of Trump. And it's really important to remember, and this is that Trump defeated Fox News. They began, I mean, they, they enjoyed him, but they set out to stop him. And the first Fox debate in um, January of 2016, they put their three most professional then-hosts on the air, Brett Bayer, Chris Wallace, and Megyn Kelly, and they asked very, very tough questions of Donald Trump. And he reacted with rage. And so the beginning of his takeover of the Republican Party was his takeover of Fox News. And it was a hostile. He did assert dominance over Fox. And that's part of the relationship between them. They don't just love him. They're also scared of him. You know, I... I also pinpoint that as a critical moment, but I have a slightly different view of that. Um, I, I, from Megyn Kelly's book, I believe that Trump knew that that uh, first question was coming. I believe that Roger Ailes leaked that leaked that question to him, and that's why he knocked it out of the park. And Maybe. I and I think that Rosie O'Donnell, that Rosie O'Donnell line, effectively changed the whole race. But he got very tough questions from Brett Baer and Chris mm. Wallace that he couldn't mm. handle. Mm-hmm. So they were all gunning for him. Oh, okay, fair uh, and, enough. And, uh, yeah, no, the, the, um, uh, Chris Wallace asked him, I think it was Chris, I forget whether it was Chris Wallace or Brett there, asked him to dom- document his claim that Mexicans are more likely to be rapists than other people, mm-hmm. um, which Trump couldn't. So maybe he was leaked that question, but it was a barrage. And that, mm-hmm. and he focused a lot of his rage on Megyn Kelly because women bother him in a way that men don't. Fair enough. David Frum, author of the book Trumpocracy, thanks so much for your time. John, thank you for let, letting me have uh, the hospitality of your airwaves. <laughs> So that is David Frum, the author of the book Trumpocracy. Check it out for yourself. Uh, as always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, please share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. (laughs) (laughs) Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.